Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would give us grace um, to do what we just sang, that now and forever you would be glorified. God, I pray that you would help us to do it now. God, I pray that you would reveal your glory to us through your word so that we can ascribe to you the glory due your name. God, we thank you that you will not share your glory with another. God, I pray that you would, again, use your word and the power of your spirit to um, crowd out of our hearts anything or anyone else uh, that we would be tempted to give glory to. God, I pray that you would grant us repentance and faith. Work in us what's pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll open to Joshua 5. Uh, Last time we were in Joshua together, we looked at all of the chapter. And that chapter told the story of Israel's first few days in the land of promise after they crossed the Jordan River. And God's commands to Israel during those days taught them what uh, first things first should look like for God's people. They prioritize above all else, before all else, devotion to God, consecration to Him, humble trust in Him, worship. In God's perfect wisdom and plan for His people, worship in Canaan would and must precede the war for Canaan. And in today's sermon, instead of just blazing ahead to chapter 6, which we'll do next week, We're going to backtrack just a little bit and take a longer, harder, hopefully sweeter look at the last part of chapter 5. And before we do that, a little interlude on um, why I'm preaching the next two weeks. Uh, Pastor Dan, as Charlie mentioned in his prayer, is traveling to Russia and Siberia. Um, He has got an opportunity to train pastors and share God's word there, so please do be in prayer for him. Over these next two weeks, I talked with him yesterday. Uh, He wanted me to send his greetings to you. Uh, He thinks about you when he's not with you. Um, So he's a a faithful shepherd. Please, please pray for him that the word would go forth through him. So you may remember, um, at the end of chapter five, there's a curious scene, a glorious scene, where Joshua meets a man with a drawn sword. And this meeting of military men initially seems like it will be a scene where the war after the worship begins. But on the contrary, this meeting actually turns out to be the apex of the worship before the war. And we'll look at only the final three verses of chapter 5 and seek to answer two simple questions. Who came to Joshua? Why did he come? And though these questions come from only three verses... Uh, The answer to them are as big as the Bible. Uh, So we'll be looking at a lot of different texts today. You won't have time to turn to them all, so just feel eager to write down the references. Uh, Would you look at Joshua 5.13 with me and following? And uh, since I plan to read the whole little passage here at the start, would you please stand? We stand in part to recognize that when we read these words... The living God presently speaks to us. 
Joshua 5.13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The Lord has spoken. You may be seated. First question, most important question, who came to Joshua? Uh, We'll note a few things to consider the man and then draw a conclusion. First of all, we note his appearance. His appearance, verse 13, describes him as a man standing before Joshua with a drawn sword in his hand. Uh, This description seems rather innocuous, but actually there are only two other times in the entire Old Testament where someone is described in this way standing with a drawn sword in his hand. And actually, both of those times come in contexts that are very similar to this one. So only three times in the Old Testament. One, you know, is Joshua 5. Another is previous to it, Numbers 22. That's the story of Balaam and and Balaam's donkey, perhaps more famously. Uh, If you remember, while Israel was traveling through the wilderness, uh, they are defeating all the kings and peoples who stand in their way approaching the promised land. And the king of Moab sees the handwriting on the wall as Israel approaches. He has this idea he's going to hire Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel on their behalf. And Balaam eventually agrees to go with the Moabites in opposition to Israel. Numbers 22 says, So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And at first, Balaam's not happy about this. He doesn't see the angel of the Lord. Eventually, he does. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and fell on his face. So the very same description of the figure as we have in Joshua 5, and there's also a similar response uh, by the one who beholds this figure. Balaam, like Joshua, falls down on his face before the one who holds the sword. The only other time in the Old Testament a figure is described this way is in First Chronicles 21, and once again, it is the angel of the Lord. In 1 Chronicles 21, David sins grievously against God by uh, sinfully ordering a census to number his people in his realm. And so God sends the prophet Gad to speak to David about the judgment that his sin merited. And this is what the punishment would be, 1 Chronicles 21, 12. Three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. And God sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, the Lord saw 
And he relented from the calamity. And he said to the angel who was working destruction, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw, just like Joshua in 5.13 lifted his eyes and beheld, the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth, and in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, did what you might guess, fell on their faces. So the striking similarities uh, in these details are enough to give us strong suspicion, at the very least, that Joshua, like David after him, like Balaam before him, lifted his eyes and saw and fell on his face before the angel of the Lord, the one who bears the sword of the Lord, who executes and carries out the very judgment of God. Now, perhaps you're wondering, uh, the man in Joshua 5 does not claim for himself the title, the angel of the Lord. Does this glaring omission uh, undermine my plan here to equate these figures? It does not. In fact, what God, previous to Joshua's leadership, had told Israel about his plan to give them the land of Canaan, what he told them about how he would do that should actually lead Joshua and us with him to expect that the angel of the Lord would appear at a time like this on the precipice of the conquest of Canaan. Uh, When God promised Canaan to Israel, he mentioned the angel of the Lord as part of the plan. In Exodus 23, a very important passage for understanding who this is. Exodus 23, starting in verse 20. God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression. Who has authority to forgive sins? God says, for my name is in him. That's a striking and important phrase. My name is in him. So this angel whom God will send is not merely one who represents God. His name is in him. He is one who reveals God. And more than that, even identifies as God. Continuing in Exodus 23, God says, If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. Interesting interchange, equating the angel's words with God's words. Then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Canaanites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, all the people in the land of Canaan, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. And God's instructions for the conquest goes on like this, but it starts... By God saying, I will send my angel, the one whom my name is in. Of course, this name of God, as we'll see later, is Yahweh, the great I Am. And God will send him. And Israel is to obey this one as they would God himself. So I think there should be very little doubt that Joshua is beholding the one that the Old Testament refers to as the angel of the Lord. 
Now, when we hear the word angel, uh, we think of, well, if we're not thinking in biblical terms, we think of the little guys on uh, toilet paper wrappers, right? Um, But if we're thinking about (laughs) the Bible, um, we think of created angels, those spiritual, moral beings, again, that God created, like the cherubim and the seraphim, or even like the fallen angels, demons, or Satan himself, awe-inspiring beings, no doubt, uh, but still creatures, not divine. But this word angel in the Bible can also simply mean messenger, and, and that's why the word was chosen to describe these created spiritual beings that God sends, because most often those created angels fulfill the function of messenger. Uh, and in fact, this word is used in the very next chapter of Joshua, talking about Rahab, who had previously hid the Israelite messengers or angels. But clearly in that context, those spies who went to Jericho were not angels in the way that you're thinking, uh, but messengers. So you should not think of the angel of the Lord as being a created angel, necessarily. Uh, a, a servant of God and a creature like Gabriel or Michael in the Bible. The title rather means just the messenger of the Lord, the one who brings word from God and makes him known. And so along these lines, perhaps the title angel or messenger of the Lord approximates some of the same meaning carried by the personal title, the word of God. So from here on out in this sermon, when I refer to the angel of the Lord, Don't think Gabriel, cherubim, think the messenger of the Lord. And moving forward now, we've we've noted his appearance. That's helped us to conclude this was the angel of the Lord, even though that specific title was not taken by the man in this scene. Uh, So now let's look at the title that was claimed by him in this scene. His title, verse 14, he says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord, or you could say the commander of the host of the Lord. Uh, We don't use the word in English host to refer to an army, uh, but in a bygone age, it could be used that way. And so in this verse, the Lord could be talking about the armies of Israelites encamped there on the west side of the Jordan, but much more likely what's being referred to here is the heavenly host, the army of heavenly beings or angel legions. The angel or messenger of the Lord is the commander of armies of created angels. This is an incredible title. Um, What an incredible thing for Joshua to hear. Between the Jordan and Jericho, God promises there will be invisible spiritual forces aiding him in the conquest of Canaan. This is surely very encouraging. An army sent from heaven will fight for you and with you. Perhaps you remember that God is often called the Lord of hosts, God of hosts in the Old Testament. And that designation, Lord of hosts, indicates that He is the ultimate commander and chief and creator and owner over created angels, the armies of heaven. I think it's a fair question to pause and ask, who could serve as the commander over the Lord's heavenly army, other than one who is the Lord himself. 
The way that Joshua responds to this commander shows his honor. His honor. Look at the honor Joshua gives to him. Verse 14, the end. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Joshua worships and obeys. He calls him my Lord and calls himself your servant. Now, it is unthinkable that a created angel would be receiving willingly this honor that is due to God alone. Do you remember in the book of Revelation when the apostle John falls down on his face before an angel who was sent to him? This is what happens. Revelation 19.10, I fell down, the apostle John fell down at the angel's feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So the Apostle John does the very same thing Joshua did outside of Jericho. He falls down at the feet of an angel, a messenger, to worship. But the messenger in Revelation doesn't say, while you're down there, take off your shoes because this is holy ground. No, he says, ah, quit. Stop, stop, get up. Worship is for God only. A very similar thing happens a few chapters later in Revelation. The Apostle John falls on his face to worship an angel. And the angel says, stop, worship God. I am a creature. I am a servant. So clearly the angel or messenger of the Lord whom Joshua saw was not a created angelic being. He can't be. He received Joshua's worship. And I only know of one angel in the universe who would accept the worship that should be given to God alone. Satan himself. I think it's clear that Joshua is not in the presence of one who wrongfully desires God's worship like Satan does. Joshua is in the presence of one who deserves God's worship like God does. Joshua's response leads us to suspect strongly this is not a created angel, but is rather a divine person. And our suppositions are confirmed by the command that this one gives to Joshua. So having considered this commander's appearance, title, and honor, now we consider his holiness. Look at verse 15. Once again, the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The presence of the commander of the Lord's army was the very presence of God. I'm sure that many of you recognize that the command that this commander commanded was almost verbatim. The same command given to Moses in Exodus 3 from the burning bush. Remember there God calls out to Moses from a burning bush and tells him, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Same command, I think there can be little doubt that the one who is appearing before Joshua is the same one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. So who was the one who appeared to Moses from the bush? You may be surprised to find out. In Exodus 3, listen to this. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian, And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, 
Exodus 3, 2. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So who appears in the bush? The angel of the Lord. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And God said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why? The bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Who called to him out of the bush? God. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he, the angel of the Lord, God, said, I am the God of your father. How dare an angel would say that, a created angel. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say, to this, say this to the people of Israel, I am, or Hebrew Yahweh, or Old English mispronunciation of this Hebrew word Jehovah, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations." So it was the angel of the Lord who said to Moses from the flaming bush, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who shall be known as I am who I am, the God who will rescue his people. The angel of the Lord reveals and identifies as the self-existing, utterly sovereign, living God. And hear this good news. He also identifies himself with reference to his people. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he claims that designation in part because he appeared to those patriarchs on several occasions. The angel of the Lord appears to Abraham in Genesis 22 when he's offering up his son Isaac. The angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. And then he, the angel of the Lord, says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In Genesis 31, Jacob has a divine encounter in a dream, and he sees the angel of the Lord. Genesis 31, 11, Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And what does the angel of God say? I am the God of Bethel. I'm the God that appeared to you that you saw in a dream with the ladder reaching up to heaven, the place that you named Bethel, saying this is the house of God. And then in the next chapter, Genesis 32, Jacob sees a man and he wrestles with him. Um, that's what you do when you see men that you don't recognize, right? <laughs> and he wrestles with him until daybreak. And then this wrestling match turns out to be a face-to-face with God himself. Jacob says, ha! Huh, 
I've seen God face to face, and I'm not dead. Reflecting on Jacob's life, and especially that encounter, the prophet Hosea says, Hosea 12, 3 and 4, In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel. Remember that? And in his manhood, Jacob strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. See, Jacob striving with God parallel with his striving with the angel of God. So perhaps it's no surprise then when Jacob prays for some of his grandchildren later in Genesis, Jacob actually addresses God as the angel who has redeemed me. Genesis 48, 15 and 16. Jacob blessed Joseph and said, listen to how Jacob addresses God in this prayer. The God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who's called I Am, Yahweh. The Lord God Himself, who is at the same time somehow also the messenger of the Lord God. And of course, we could add the one who is also the, commandee, the commander of the army of the Lord, who is identified as the Lord. So the commander of the army of the Lord is in a sense distinct from God and in another sense identical with God. Maybe we could say he was with God and was God. And that has been true ever since a time that was before all time called in the beginning. So having considered the man, we now turn to draw a conclusion. Are you so excited for this part? Who came to Joshua? Uh, In my mind, there are only two good options. And I will start by giving you uh, neither of them. (laughs) I'll tell you that some good and godly men believe that the angel of the Lord is actually a created angel not a divine person, and they say that uh, he speaks as God and receives worship for God because it was customary in the ancient Near East for messengers to speak as the king's surrogate, to speak in the name of the one who sent them, and also to receive homage that's actually directed to the one who sent them on behalf of the one who sent them. Uh, I don't buy it. But you can be my brother in Christ and believe that. Both of what I count as the good options are really variations of the same broad conclusion. That here in Joshua 5, we see the divine Son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who would come many years later, who would be born as a man, and they would call his name Jesus. I thought some of you might want to say his name. So option one, we can confess together with so many Christians through the ages uh, what Calvin put so boldly and bluntly in his commentary on these verses in Joshua 5, quote, We have often said that in the books of Moses, the name of Jehovah is often attributed to the angel of the Lord, who was undoubtedly the only begotten Son of God. Uh, it's important to add that the commander of the Lord's army 
isn't the Son actually coming in human flesh, but rather merely appearing in human form. Uh, The second interpretive option is like the first, just a little softer, a little more nuanced, and that would be that the commander is a special manifestation of God's presence that uniquely reveals or especially points to the only begotten Son of God and, and signifies Him. But in either case, we can line up together under this simple statement that here with Joshua, we see the Son of God. And we learn from the Bible that this one who is called the messenger of God is also called the word of God, the image of God, the radiance of the glory of God, the Son of God, the only begotten God. And He is the one the church has confessed in certain truth and adoring love as, the creed puts it, the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This is God sent. God sent by God. And this God is sent in salvation history because eternally He has been God from God. Eternally begotten of the Father, forever perfectly expressing the Father. And so, by Jericho, we have a shadowy revelation of the Son. And we are led to anticipate the time when the Son would come not in appearance or signification only, but in person, in the fullest sense. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. But Joshua 5 shows us that even before that fullness of time, before the Son was sent ultimately and personally, God was at work in the world in and through His Son. And we can and should add, in and through His Spirit. And it could not have been otherwise. Because this is who God is. It's who God always will be and who God always has been even before He fully revealed Himself to be so. God has always acted toward His world as Father, Son, and Spirit. And He has done so precisely because, to use His words, He is who He is. So throughout all of salvation history, from the beginning... The agent of God's work in the world, creating, sustaining, revealing, dwelling amongst, saving, judging, ruling, is the eternal Son. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do you see His glory? Many of the things we've noticed about the commander of the Lord's army in Joshua 5 are things we see and hear about Jesus when He came as God incarnate dwelling among us. The commander was captain of the Lord's hosts, and Jesus claimed ownership and command over the angelic host. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, tells Peter he could appeal to the Father to send legions of angels to fight for him. Jesus also said that when he comes back, he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect. 
In 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8 says, The Lord Jesus will one day be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. When you sing, a mighty fortress is our God. And that that verse which says, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is He, Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is His name. From age to age the same, and He must win the battle. The commander of the Lord's army received worship as God, and Jesus repeatedly received divine worship in the New Testament. Several times it said explicitly that people fall down before him on their faces, as Joshua did on the banks of Jordan. Hebrews 1.6 says, When God brought the firstborn into the world, he said, Let all God's angels worship him. The commander of the army of the Lord was the Holy One who made the ground holy before his presence. And, and Jesus, to mention just one instance, was recognized by an angel a fallen angel, as the Holy One of God. The commander of the Lord's army confirmed to Joshua that he was the same God who appeared to Moses and the same God who had appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The God whom Abraham and Moses and Joshua experienced was the one true living God who exists as a blessed trinity. And although our Old Testament forefathers could not have articulated it like this at that time, we can say, looking backwards, on their stories, that they witnessed the revelation, salvation, and judgment of God as the Father worked in His Son by His Spirit. One of the earliest um, uh, things that we have that, that the church would proclaim together, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. So having answered the first question, who came to Joshua? We turn quickly now to answer the second. Why did he come? Looking again at these verses, uh, notice that the only other thing that the commander of the Lord's army says to Joshua, other than revealing his identity and his holiness, is this little sentence right in the middle of verse 14, now I have come. Now I have come. Why did he come? First, we can say he came to reveal God. Just as God revealed himself on holy ground to Moses before the Exodus, God revealed himself on holy ground to Joshua before the conquest. And revealing himself in this way, God is continuing to fulfill the promise he made to Joshua. Remember, God told Joshua in 1 5, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then in Joshua 3, 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, 
I will be with you. The commander reveals the great I am who set his love on Abraham and his descendants. Secondly, this divine commander comes to be present with God's people. Remember in Exodus 23, which we read, God told Moses, uh, I will send the angel before you to bring you to the place I have prepared, and my name is in him. And God promised that through this sent messenger, he would be present with them. Isaiah 63 looks back on Israel's redemption and says, the angel of his presence saved them. The angel of his presence, Isaiah 63, 9. Um, Maybe you remember the golden calf incident, and, and they sinned against the Lord with idolatry, And one of the things God says is, this is a stubborn, sinful, stiff-necked people. You go on, go to the land. Um, I'll give it to you, but I'm not going with you. And Moses pleads with the Lord and says, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us. It's not worth it to us to go to Canaan if your presence doesn't go with us. It's not worth it to go to heaven if God isn't there. And God grants Moses this request and says, My presence will go with you. And the appearance of the commander of the host of the Lord shows God was faithful to that promise. Next, the commander came to save God's people. We could look at many verses. Numbers 20, 16. The angel of the Lord was sent to accomplish Israel's salvation from the start. When we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. In the very beginning of Judges, the book right after Joshua, the angel of the Lord appears and says, I brought you up from Egypt, and into the land I swore to give to your fathers. And finally, and most conspicuously, the commander of the army came to judge God's enemies. And the commander's drawn sword is a frightful representation of God and of the judgment of God that he was about to carry out. And this frequently is the mission of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. And it will be again one day in the future. The title even, the commander of the Lord's army, spotlights his judgment. So God sent God to reveal himself, save his people, be present with them, and judge his enemies. When the fullness of time came, God sent God, His Son, to reveal Himself, to save His people, to be present with Him and judge His enemies. When Jesus came in human flesh, He said, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. He came to reveal God. He came to be present with God's people. The name that they called Him when He was born was Emmanuel. He was God with us. He came to save God's people. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. John 3, 17. And of course, the Son said that He was the one who, to whom it had been appointed to judge God's enemies. In John 5, 22 and following, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Purpose so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. John 5, 27, The Father has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. 
So in conclusion, why don't you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. This is one of the last depictions we have of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. And it is also a vision of Him serving as the commander of the army of the Lord. Revelation 19. And I'll start in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. When the Lord Jesus returns, the armies of heaven will follow him. And all who have persisted in unrepentant sin against God and against his Christ will be struck down by his word. But the good news is that you and I do not have to be among those who are struck down by the sword that comes from his mouth. When God sent the Son 2,000 years ago, the commander of the army of the Lord did not call down legions of angels to fight for him in the Garden of Gethsemane, though he could have. Jesus even commanded his human disciples to put away their swords. He allowed himself to be captured by a ragtag bunch of soldiers who came to him by torchlight, and he allowed himself to be falsely accused and to be nailed to a cross. And instead of wielding the sword of the Lord's judgment, the commander made himself the object of it so that we could be spared from it. The captain of the Lord's host willingly laid down his life in order to save some of us. We who hail from the opposing army of rebels... Because he loved us, he took our place, took our punishment, paid our sin debt as our substitute, and thereby liberated us from the clutches of sin's power so that we could willingly love and live for him. And then he rose from the dead, proving that he is the one who will conquer every foe, including sin, Satan, and even death. Edmund Clowney puts it this way, His hands do not now bear the sword, but are lifted in blessing, displaying the marks of the nails. The captain received the spear thrust to win his battle. Before him we fall down with Joshua and say with Thomas, My Lord and my God. And if you will do that, 
you will be saved. I'd like to close by just reading again. First, Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and following. There is coming a day when the Lord is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. When He comes on that day, to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. You who have believed, do you marvel at Him? You will. You who are His saints, He is coming to be glorified in you. Let's pray. God, You have shown us Your glory by sending Your Son And then by sending your Spirit, who has exalted the Son before us, in part by inspiring these words, so that we could hear them and marvel at your Son, and believe in Him, and believe on the testimony about Him that your Spirit bears witness to us through this Word. God, I pray that you would draw from us, again as I prayed before, the glory that's due your name. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, the Son. Amen.